Father, as we consider our lives, we're reminded in the Psalms that our life is but a vapor, that uh, we are here today and gone tomorrow, so to speak. And yet, Father, in the duration of that life, you are faithful, and you, in turn, expect us to turn to you with all of our faith and hope and desires and to serve the sovereign and living God. We're thankful for the indwelling Holy Spirit who enables us to be obedient, who enables us to understand, who gives us insight into the Word of God. And we ask for that insight here this morning. Father, as human beings, we're very feeble in our approach to Scripture, but your Spirit can open our eyes and help us to see. And then, Father, as James admonishes us to uh, make the Word a part of our lives and to be doers of it and not just hearers only, that that might be true for each of us. Lord, each of us today has certain needs, whether they be physical or financial or emotional or spiritual. Lord, you know those needs, and we pray that some way, somehow, you will make your Word speak to those needs today. Lord, bless every class as the Word is being taught this hour. In Christ's name, amen. 31st chapter of the book of Genesis, chapter 31. We were able last week to uh, begin to look at this, the first verses in this chapter, and I'd like to read that first passage again, uh, verses 1 through 16. Now Jacob heard the words of Laban's sons, saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's, and from what belonged to our father, he has made all his wealth, or all this wealth. And Jacob saw the attitude of Laban, and behold, it was not friendly toward him as formerly. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah to his flock in the field. And he said to them, I see your father's attitude, that it is not friendly toward me as formerly. But the God of my father has been with me, and you know that I have served your father with all my strength. Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. However, God did not allow him to hurt me. If he spoke thus, the speckled shall be your wages, then all the flock brought forth speckled. And if he spoke thus, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock brought forth striped. Thus God has taken away your father's livestock and given them to me. And it came about at the time when the flock were mating that I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream. And behold, the male goats which were mating were striped, speckled, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, Here am I. And he said, Lift up now your eyes and see that all the male goats which are mating are striped, speckled, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel where you anointed a pillar, where you made a vow to me. Now arise, leave this land, return to the land of your birth. And Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Do we have any portion or inheritance in our father's house? Are we not reckoned to him as foreigners? For he has sold us and has also entirely consumed our purchase price. Surely all the wealth which God has taken away from our father belongs to us and our children. Now then, do whatever God has said to you. Jacob, of course, faces the dilemma. 
he had agreed to work additional years in, in order to receive a, a wage, in, in this case, animals from the flock which were to be his. And we, we talked about that from the 30th chapter, how that was to be arrived at. This passage, of course, indicates that even after the agreement was originally made, Laban constantly tried to change the agreement. And, uh, you know, as we looked at the original agreement, I mentioned the fact that Laban found it easy to make agreements because he didn't intend to stick with the agreement anyway. So, finally, Jacob has this dream. And as a result of this dream, Jacob calls his two wives into the field, as we noticed. He calls a conference with Leah and Rachel, and he takes them out into the field, way away from the tent, way away from the children, way away from anyone who could overhear the conversation. And certainly they wondered about this. Why would, be, why would Jacob be taking them way out into the field to talk with them? And I think it was a little unusual for him to talk to the two of them together because there was not good feeling between the two sisters. Uh, and so this seemed a little unusual to them also. But it was very important to, to Jacob that this conversation not be overheard, because the slightest wind uh, of, of what he intended to do, get, uh, if it were to get out, would spoil the whole thing, at least as Jacob viewed it. Now, I think it was pretty hard for Jacob to launch into this conversation with his, with his two wives. After all, he was going to be speaking about their father and their brothers. And she he was not going to be speaking to them uh, about them in a positive way. And so I don't think it was real easy for him to, to launch into this conversation. Now, remember, today, uh, hopefully, as those of us who are married, we have developed a relationship with one another so that sensitive issues can be discussed openly. But just think about Jacob. His emotional strength and, and his intimacy has been spread over two, even four wives if you count the concubines. And so, you know, was there one that he was intimate enough with that he could say these things without feeling intimidated? Apparently not. Uh, even though certainly he was most intimate with, with Rachel. But you'll discover as you read through this passage, he has to justify his plan and justify what he is going to say to them. He reminds them of how often Laban had cheated him, how often Laban had changed his wages. And they knew all this. They had seen it happen. And of course, they were the recipients of that also. But I think it's important to acknowledge, acknowledge something here about Jacob. And that is that he recognized the hand of God in spite of all of this. He acknowledged himself that God had protected him. You know, Laban had tried to do all these things, but he said, God, he did not allow him to hurt me. And he also acknowledged that God was the source of his prosperity. Ultimately, God is the source of our prosperity. Whatever we have, whatever our hopes are, they must be focused in the Lord. I think as he turned his or their attention upon the Lord, he was not doing this only as an expression of honesty, which certainly he was, nor was it only an expression of humility, which it was also. But it was, all, it was an attempt to focus their minds on the power of Yahweh. Because they were raised in a household where their father did his little diddlywat with the household idols, you know. And, and they didn't worship Yahweh. They may have known of his existence, but to, him, uh, to them, he was not the focus of their attention. 
And so he is trying to explain to his wives, uh, a little more fully at least, how important God really was and how powerful God was. And thus, if God said to do this, we've got the power and the strength to do it. And we don't have to be worried about other gods. I think it was important for them to be aware of the fact that God was righteous and God was just. And so he pointed out how God had taken away Laban's increase and given it to Jacob. Because Jacob had been cheated by Laban, God was straightening out the whole deal. The Lord says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. It's hard for us to keep that in mind. Because our natural tendency is to try to always level the playing field. You know? We want to make sure that you know, the, the, the downtrodden is uplifted. And I'm not saying that that's bad. But it's like just recently I was reading, I think it was Moody Monthly, the Operation Rescue, for example, has, has you know, they, they have castigated the people who have shot abortion doctors and said that this is immoral, this is wrong, this should not be done. But some person said, but we may find, not a, from Operation Rescue, some other individual said that, but we may find down the line as we look back at it that these were the people who were right, the people who did the shooting. And I thought as I read that, this person has never read that passage of Scripture <laughs> or doesn't understand what it is. The Lord says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. It's not up to us to take that kind of vengeance. It's not up to us to violate the straight word of God because we think it's okay to do that because something else is bad. We don't do evil to correct evil. Two evils do not make a good. You know, two wrongs don't make a right. And uh, so we need to re remember that as the church, our weapon is prayer. That is our weapon. Not that we shouldn't do other things too. Definitely we should, as Mary does and others who cooperate. In, in these ways. There are many ways by which other things can be done, but not in violation of the Word of God. Jacob understood this principle. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, and God was making it right. Now, God doesn't always make it right so quickly or so clearly. God sometimes allows an, a, an injustice to go for a long time, and He may allow that injustice to go into the grave. But our ultimate hope has got to be we all stand before God and nothing will go unremitted. I mean, our sins, if we're Christians, will be <clears throat> cleansed and we will not stand guilty. But those who are not cleansed by the blood of the Lamb will stand guilty before their Maker and no sin will be forgotten. Not that we should draw joy from that, uh, but we have to realize that in that way, God's justice is carried out. Now, Jacob could have been bitter, and, you know, certainly he's not real excited or happy about what Laban has done. But he notices that God is working on his behalf, and God is making right the wrong. And Laban is frustrated in the whole thing, and that's why he kept changing his wages. Now, just in case the two were not persuaded, the two ladies... Jacob relates to them the dream. Now, the dream was alluded to back in the third verse. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. But that was not all that was in the dream. That was a part of the dream. 
He goes on to explain to them more of the detail of the dream down beginning in verse 11, where he says, Then the angel of the Lord of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, Here am I. And he said, Lift up now your eyes and see all the male goats that are mating are striped and speckled and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. He made it clear that God was responsible for the goats turning out the way they did, and by implication, the sheep also. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar, where you made a vow to me. Now arise, leave this land, and return to the land of your birth. God is expressing there his faithfulness and his immutability. God had not changed in those 20 years. God remembered the vow. God had made his promise. God was remembering the promise and the vow, and God was re reminding Jacob of this. God had not changed. God was faithful to continue to carry out his promise. I am the God of Bethel. He reminded Jacob of the anointing of the pillar, of his vow to God and of God's promises to him. And so God was carrying out his promise. And he expected Jacob, therefore, to fulfill his vow. You vowed a vow to me that if I would do these things, I would be your God. Now I want you to fulfill your vow. I will be your God and I alone will be your God. And thus you will obey, you see. That is, imp that is implied. That is implicit in the concept of God being God. If God is God, he is to be obeyed. Because if he is not God, if he is not our God, then we probably will not be an obedient person. But Jesus said later on, why is it that you call me Lord and do not do the things I have commanded you? Rachel and Leah showed no signs of being shaken by, by Jacob's conversation here. They didn't start muttering about, oh man, this guy's our father. Those are our brothers. How do you, dare you talk like, no, <laughs> nothing like that comes out of these two ladies' mouths. They felt that their father had sold them to enrich himself. They had very poor thoughts about their father. It seems obvious. They, uh, their father could have been converting Jacob's 14 years of labor into, in effect, a dowry that would ensure their sustenance down through the years ahead. Instead, uh, through the 14 years, all that Jacob had to show for his labor with, with Laban was two wives and at least 13 children. That's all he had. He had nothing else. And they understood that, hey, what's, what's going to be the future for us? What's going to be the future for our children? What will our children inherit if Jacob earns nothing more than just livelihood? It's got to be more than just livelihood. And so they recognized that their father was consuming what should have been theirs for his own benefit. In other words, he was building up his own wealth for whom? For them? No, the inheritance would go to the sons and not to the daughters. And thus, they were being ripped off. It was their due. And so, they agreed to Jacob's proposal. In fact, they encouraged him, do the bidding of the Lord for the sake of our children, if for nothing else. 
I think this was probably one of the few instances where, Jake, uh, where, where Rachel and Leah were in total agreement. You know? They both were in full agreement over this, and I think they were vehement in urging Jacob to do what he had to do. Now, this was very, very important for Jacob. Unity and harmony are absolutely essential in a home between a husband and a wife. And you and I all know what happens if there is disharmony and disunion. It leads to chaos. It leads to, to kids who are uh, dysfunctional. Uh, it leads to broken homes. Sometimes it leads to violence. The scripture teaches us that a husband and a wife are to be one flesh. There's only one way to be one flesh, and it doesn't come through disunity. We've got to be united. Another passage of scripture teaches us, how can two walk together unless they be in agreement? <laughs> it's very hard. And so, in this case, it was, it was imperative for Jacob to have Rachel and Leah in full agreement, not because he couldn't have ordered them. He was the husband. And in, under the land, a law of the land of those days, he was in charge. He could have commanded them. But what could they have done? They could have let the word out. Uh, they could have been dragging their heels. Uh, they could have uh, not encouraged their children to, to follow. There are a lot of things they could have done. But by having them in his camp, believing as he believed, seeing the urgency of it all, they would be co-workers with him in this and they would be just as urgent in seeing to it that everything functioned as it should and that all the kids were in line. Verse 17. Then Jacob arose, put his children and his wives upon camels, and he drove away all his livestock and all his property which he had gathered, his acquired livestock which he had gathered in Padanaram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. When Laban had gone to shear his flock, then Rachel stole the household idols which were, that were her father's. And Jacob deceived Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he was fleeing. So he fled with all that he had, and he arose and crossed the, excuse me, the Euphrates River, and he set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. Jacob did not give Laban two weeks' notice. <laughs> he was not about to do that. He believed that if Laban suspected that he was going to leave, that Laban would do absolutely everything in his power to prevent Jacob from leaving, and he had a lot of power to do that. Because Jacob did not yet have a large entourage of men who could be used to defend him against Laban's attack. Later, like the later Pharaoh of the Exodus, Laban knew when he had a good thing going. Prosperity. Now, the, the scripture says, uh, Jacob says in his, in his comment to his wives, that God has taken what was your father's and given it to me. Now, what he is saying there is not a, a statement of, absolute, of, a, of an absolute situation. He's just simply saying, God is, is making up what is due to me. Laban's herds were still multiplying. Laban's herds were still growing. Laban was still being blessed. It's just that God was blessing Jacob too from that, that reproduction. And Jacob's herds were growing at a rap, more rapid rate for the reasons that I gave you last week. Now, how long after the dream and 
the conference that Jacob had with his wives in the field, how long was it that Jacob waited before he departed? Well, we can't really know because verse 16 just ends with that conversation and then verse 17 begins and then Jacob arose. Now we have to put a time factor in there. Between verse 16 and 17, certainly a certain amount of time has passed. Whether a few days or a few weeks or even a few months, we don't know. I think not the longer duration. Very possibly just a matter of a few days or a week or two passed between those two times. It only had to be long enough for Jacob to plan and to organize and for the two wives to be part of this organization to get everything in, in such a situation so that it could be grabbed up quickly and packed away in a hurry. You know, take some planning. I mean, after all, if you've been spread out through the tents, you know, I mean, just think about this. You've got tents and tents and tents and tents all over the place here with all these little households and, and the people that were serving Jacob were, uh, certainly some of them at least, or their families were living in these tents also. And so all of this planning had to take place so that they'd be ready to go at a moment's notice. And I think when that moment came, the, everything was struck before daylight. Before the sun ever came up, all those tents came down. They probably were busy during, during the night getting things together, probably grabbed a few winks as we call it today, and, and then got all that stuff put on the camels and, and the donkeys and whatever else uh, were going to be the beasts of burden, and uh, were ready to go before the sun ever came up. So they could be gone before and on the way before they were discovered to have left. Jacob put his wives and his children on camels and sent them off. Jacob himself went with the hired hands to take care of the animals, to herd the flocks. And this was going to be some herding, let me clue you, uh, not to be uh, typically followed. <laughs> uh, you know, most people who herd animals don't want to wear the animals out if you can avoid it. Uh, you know, move them slowly, let them eat grass, keep them fat or whatever it is you're interested in. And don't try to drive them like, uh, you know, a stampeding herd which is almost what he had to do here to get these animals to move along. They timed their departure to coincide with Laban's absence. This was not an accident. Uh, they knew that Laban was going to be gone and his sons would be gone also because they were already taking care of those sheep. And so he went to be with his sons and to take, help them in uh, the shearing of the sheep at a distant place. Uh, unfortunately for Jacob, the absence of Laban also opened the door, or the tent flap if you prefer, for Rachel to go in and steal her father's idols. Now, you know, think about Rachel for a moment. She's got this little bit of, of the past history of her life still there, and, and there's still a magnetism about these things. And so she grabs these things up when nobody's looking and uh, sweeps them away. And nobody knows she has them except Rachel herself. Now, what's interesting, uh, Mort was pointing out a couple of weeks ago, there's a little note in his Bible. What is that Bible? Is that a study Bible of some sort, I guess? Anyway, there's a note at the bottom which said that there's some evidence that's been unearthed in some of the tablets, like the Ebla tablets and others, to indicate the possibility that these idols also had a connotation of inheritance attached to them. 
that whoever possessed them was to be the person who was to be recipient of the inheritance. And, uh, you know, that would be another reason that uh, Laban would be pretty concerned about these uh, idols being missing because the wrong person would have them uh, if Jacob had them anyway. Of course, Jacob didn't know they were with him. Now, in the Hebrew, the word here is teraphim. The word for these little idols is teraphim. That is a plural noun which refers to little figurines that uh, were often found in pagan households. These little figurines were used for divination, as we saw here in this particular uh, series of passages. Uh, and also, there was a certain good luck quality about them. It's sort of like the Roman lares and Penates. They had their, the Romans had their little altar in their house with the little figures. And these were sort of the household gods. You know, some people put a horseshoe over their doorway or they have their keys on a rabbit's foot. Or, I mean, it's, it's more than that, but it carries at least some of that connotation uh, with them. These uh, little figures, by the way, in the archaeology that's been going on for the last 150 years or so in the Near East, they've uncovered uh, thousands of these little statues. Little things, uh, usually they're clay, sometimes they're stone, but usually they're clay that maybe just a few inches to the better part of a foot in height. Uh, generally, they are either clearly male or female, or sometimes they're amorphous and you can't tell exactly what they are. But uh, since there has not been other writing than the scripture to speak about these things, you know, there's a lot of guessing about them. Probably some of you are familiar with the archaeology that took place uh, by uh, uh, Mr. Evans back, oh, oh, shoot, it was early, early this century on the island of Crete where he uncovered the great palace at Knossos. And working with the Minoan civilization, which was the first civilization in the so-called Greek world, uh, the Minoan civilization goes back about 4,000 years uh, from now. Uh, they found all kinds of little statues. And these little statues uh, were generally female. And uh, from these little statues, they assumed that these people were very much into the worship of female deities. Now, others have come along later and said, well, you know, that may not have been the real meaning, that they were sort of, in a way, sort of like the teraphim that we're referring to here and were sort of good luck type charms, M means by which you uh, can uh, divine what the gods want to say. These little teraphim were apparently pretty important. Uh, Terah brought them with him. It, the implication is that Terah brought them with him when he came from Ur of the Chaldees and moved to Haran, and uh, these had been inherited through the family and now were the possession of Laban. I'd like to, I've, I've noted a few passages there. Let me just turn to those. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 21, verse 21. Now this is referring to a situation which occurs the better part of a millennium and a half after the time we're talking about and occurs in a different place. It occurs in Babylon. Verse 21, Ezekiel 21, verse 21. For the king of Babylon stands at the parting of the way, at the head of the two ways, to use divination. He shakes the arrows, he consults the teraphim, he looks at the liver. Now, 
these three things are, are put in, in juxtaposition because of their interrelationship with each other. Uh, the pagans commonly used different things like a flock of geese flying overhead or the dissection of a goat liver or something to try to divine what the gods wanted to happen. The shaking of the arrows, sort of like pickup sticks, you know, you throw them down and the way the pattern can be interpreted by the shaman. He can kind of look at all the, oh, wow, shoot, man, you're in trouble, you know, or, or things are going to be good or whatever. He can say whatever he wants to say. Now, is he guided by a, an evil spirit? Possibly. Is it just his own invention? Oh, that's possible too. The shaman. In, in this situation, you'll notice that the teraphim are right in the midst of this. Obviously, somehow they were used for divination. Now, did they impact Israel? Unfortunately, they did. If you turn to 2 Kings, you'll see that towards the end of the period of the rule of the kings of Judah, you have still an impact of these. In 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 24, this Josiah, remember, brought a revival to the land. Moreover, Josiah removed the mediums and the spiritists and the teraphim and the idols, meaning the larger idols, and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might confirm the, word of the words of the law which were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. They found a copy of uh, Scripture after they cleaned up the house of the Lord, and whoa, you know, obviously Josiah was not familiar with it, had never read it before, and these words came and hit him like a thunderbolt. And so he cleans up the land. And you notice the teraphim are mixed right in with the spiritists and the mediums and the idols. Uh, you know, we're not talking about innocent little clay figures stuck up on the wall like a bunch of dolls. This wasn't Laban's doll collection, you know. Uh, they had a spiritual connotation, and it was not a godly spiritual connotation. Now, this would continue to impact Israel down to the very end of Israel as we know it in the Old Testament period. I don't remember if I put this one on here, but if you turn to Zechariah, which is right near the end of the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 10. Ask rain from the Lord at the time of the spring rain the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain, vegetation in the field to each man. For the teraphim speak iniquity, and the diviners see lying visions and tell false dreams. They comfort in vain. Therefore the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted because there is no shepherd. We're talking about a serious situation here. And uh, part of the reaction of Laban displays the seriousness of this situation. And, of course, what it tells us is also something about the character of Rachel. Rachel has come to believe in Yahweh, but not fully. She is still hedging her bets, as, as it was, would be. Uh, by taking these along, she's guaranteeing that she'll be protected and, and to whatever extent they have an a, uh, inheritance uh, feature to them, that, of course, would, would just simply be further reason that she would uh, want to take these gods along. And maybe a, a more important reason. Who knows? Maybe that was the sole reason she took them. 
But uh, it would seem, since Leah was not involved in this, that maybe she had a little stronger faith in the true and the living God than Rachel. We can only uh, guess. According to this passage in the 31st chapter of uh, Genesis, Jacob fled from his father-in-law, taking everything with him. He didn't just up and flee. He took everything with him. Tents, people, all the goods that he had, all the animals that he had. He was moving the whole kit and caboodle. Now, remember when he originally came to Padanaram? Why did he come? He was fleeing from his brother. Now he's going back to Canaan. What is he doing? Fleeing from his father-in-law. <laughs> he spends his whole life fleeing, it seems, you know, from someone. But even in this, God is with him. Isn't that interesting? To whatever extent Jacob is culpable here, God is still with him. And God is the one who commanded him to leave anyway. He was going to Canaan because he wanted to see his parents. He was going to Canaan because God told him to. But the instant motivator, the electric prod, if you will, was the fact that Laban was now a threat to him. Sometimes God has to use other things in our lives to get us going. We may know the direction God wants us to go, but we're a little reticent. We're kind of comfortable where we are. And God sometimes has to give us that little jab, you know, and it could be, you know, a financial problem, a business failure, uh, you know, illness, uh, a child in trouble. Who knows what it is that God could use to get us going? In this case, he used the fact that Laban's countenance was not favorable to him anymore and his brothers-in-law were speaking ill and showing their jealousy and their greed. And so he decided for his own sake, he better move out. And we need to try to picture this. But we're not talking about a guy, uh, you know, riding a camel with two wives on two camels and some kids on some camels just lighting out across the desert here. No. We're talking about a man who's dragging everything with him. He's got a lot to drag. You know, most of us are real, real keen. I don't know about you, but I'm not real keen on moving. I don't like to move. I've moved enough times. Uh, I cannot even comprehend how some people move as often as they do. You know, you, either you have, you have to travel light, or you're either very strong or something. <laughs> but I was, I was talking to someone the other day, and they were saying that they'd moved 31 times. <sighs> 31 times? <laughs> I don't, maybe that was someone in this room. I don't know. I can't remember who I was even talking to. But I thought, oh man, I cannot imagine that. The last two times we moved, we had someone who helped us. Thank the Lord. You know, we had a friend who worked for a moving company and he was able to borrow the whole thing, you know, the whole rig. Tractor, trailer, the whole thing. And he came over and he helped us load this thing. And of course, we weren't going, we were only going. Uh, across the bay, but that was uh, 30 miles or so one way, so that wasn't terribly far. But it beats trying to haul that stuff in a car, you know. <laughs> and then when we moved up here, the college uh, rented trucks and, and had people from the college to, uh, to carry most of the baked stuff up here, and so that was, that was a big help, obviously, a big help. But uh, 
th this guy is moving out with everything. No moving van company. Uh, they're taking it all with them. Now, he's got to move quickly. He's got to move south from Heron or, or west from Heron. We don't know which. I, I, I see we have a map up here. One of these days I'll uh, get an overhead and we'll, we'll, I've got some maps that could show these things. But if you can just picture in your mind, Heron is up here at the top of the Fertile Crescent. And there's a major route that comes up from Mesopotamia and comes up to Heron. And from Heron, you can go north, west, or south. You can go north and, and then up towards Turkey. You can go due west and hook into the route that goes south. Or you can go south and hook into the route that goes south. And, and either way, you, you're, you're cutting over to the west towards Aleppo and then down to Hamath and down to Damascus and then down to Canaan. Now today, all of those territories are basically in, in Syria until you get down to, uh, to Jordan. But uh, we're talking about a fairly good distance here. So he's, he's moving out, probably taking the southerly route because he probably already had his animals partway down there, and, and going down to cross the Euphrates River. Now, wherever you look at a map and you see a trade route crossing a river, you know that trade route crosses that river where it does because there's a ford there. And I don't mean an automobile, obviously. There is a shallow area in the river which can be normally passed except possibly at flood stage and where you can take caravans across because uh, they simply didn't build bridges in those days like we think of bridges today. Not that they couldn't build any bridges. They did bridge the Euphrates further on in, in various places like at Babylon. But generally, the trade routes did not cross on bridges. They crossed at fords. And so he had to take this whole herd of animals and people and everything and, and ford the Euphrates River with them. I don't know. I've never tried to drive a herd of goats and sheep over a river or through a river. But I suppose it's a bit chaotic. And then uh, from there, he had to follow the major uh, trade route southerly down towards the ultimate goal being Gilead. Now, why Gilead? Why is he going to Gilead? I mean, Gilead's on the other side of the Jordan from where he was going. Why Gilead? Well, Scripture doesn't say why Gilead. Uh, as, he, as he moved his animals south it's, and his whole caravan south, it could be that he didn't even decide on Gilead until he had traveled down the route for, for quite a distance. He didn't have to decide until he got south of Damascus because there's really only one major trade route through there moving down the east side of the ranges there in Lebanon. By the way, that's a great place to travel in those days because from the Lebanon ranges, the rivers came down out into the plains there, and so there were oases and, and places where water was available for the animals as they came down. And south of Damascus, the, the, the main route split into two. So as you're coming down from Damascus here towards Canaan, which is here, the route splits and one goes to the what would be our left looking at the map this way would be his right to the west goes to the west and down the coast and that's called the Via Mars or the way of the sea and the other one goes almost vertically straight south from there and it's on the other side of the Jordan traveling down the highlands of what is today trans or the, the country of Jordan and it travels through Bashan and Gilead and Ammon and Moab and Edom and all the way down to the Red Sea 
So once he had passed Damascus, he apparently made the decision to take the, what would, as he traveled south, be the left branch or the, the direct south branch and head towards Gilead. Why? Well, the only reason that we can think of or that commentators can think of is that either he wanted to throw Laban off his trail, since Laban knew where he was headed, would probably think, well, why would he go that way? He, he would certainly take the main route instead of the King's Highway, as it was called. Or possibly it was because with such a huge number of animals and this big entourage that he had with him, that it would be easier to travel south along the less well-traveled and more lightly populated uplands of Jordan than it would be to try to go right down through the more heavily populated uh, Canaan. Well, whatever was the reason, he was headed for Gilead. Maybe he heard that there was a bomb in Gilead. I don't know, you know. <coughs> that was not good. Okay, thank you. <laughs> All right. Let's read verse 22. When it was told Laban on the third day, notice that, on the third day that Jacob had fled, then he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him a distance of seven days' journey. And he overtook him in the hill country of Gilead. And God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream of the night and said to him, Be careful that you do not speak to Jacob either good or bad. And Laban caught up with Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country. And Laban with his kinsmen camped in the hill country of Gilead. Then Laban said to Jacob, what have you done by deceiving me and carrying away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and deceive me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with joy and with songs and with timbrel and lyre, you liar, <laughs> and did not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm, but the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to speak either good or bad to Jacob. And now you have indeed gone away, because you have longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Then Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I said, Lest you would take your daughters from me by force. Then the one with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what is yours among my belongings and take it for yourself. For Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. Now the math is pretty important here. The math is important to understand this story. It's simple math. It's just addition. But this addition is necessary for us to comprehend how this could happen, how it could even be possible. The distance of three days' journey that Laban had put between his encampment and the flock of, of mottled and striped and spotted goats and, and the dark-colored sheep uh, serves here to Jacob's advantage. Now, remember, Laban had moved them off so there'd be no chance of those intermingling with the, the culled herds and, and thus uh, producing the, the uh, lambs and the goats that should be Jacob's. But now this really serves to Jacob's advantage. Because Laban was off with his sons shearing that flock. And that flock was three days' journey away. <coughs> Apparently not just three days' journey as far as a flock meandering for three days, but three days' travel uh, by a messenger. 
This seems to be supported by the statement in verse 22 where we're told that, Jacob, uh, that Laban did not hear of Jacob's departure until the third day. In other words, they were almost three days down the line here before Laban even heard that they had, lo- that they had left. Now, just, you know, if we can try to picture this, it, it's real hard unless you've been over there and, and seen some of these Bedouin encampments. But the Bedouins often, sometimes they, they camp singularly, but often they camp in groups. And you have these black goat hair tents or camel hair tents. They're fairly large. A lot of those tents are, are as, as big as half this room or close to that, you know, in, in, incorporated in, underneath this tent. And sometimes there's several of them together. And the animals are wandering around, you know, and it's, it's very interesting. When all of that's removed, you notice it. Because these tents are very, they're very much uh, conspicuous out there because they're very dark uh, out on this rather light landscape. Uh, and so the tents were struck and everybody was gone. And, you know, how many hours did it take for somebody wandering around there and says, whoa, hey, these guys are gone, you know, one of, one of Laban's uh, servants or maybe one of his kinsmen who lived in the area noticed they're gone. I wonder if Laban knows this. And so a messenger is sent to go to Laban to say, you know, did you know that Jacob was gone? We don't know where he went. It took three days or close to three days, at least on the third day, before the message even got to Laban uh, telling him of Jacob's flight. Now, what does Laban do? Does Laban say, oh, Jacob's gone. Drop everything. Let's go. I mean, they're in the midst of shearing the sheep. They can't just drop everything. It probably took him the rest of that day, maybe another day, who knows, to to wind down the operation or to transfer it to someone else who who could finish the operation if they weren't uh, done, and then to get his act together and go back where? To Haran. He's got to go to Haran first. He doesn't go just light out after Jacob. He's got to go back to Haran. So that's another three days, right? So you've got three, you've got three, maybe one in between. That's a whole week, probably before he is even ready to take off after Jacob. And even once he gets to Haran, he's got to organize. He's got to, it says he took his kinsmen. Well, did all of his kinsmen live in his tents? Probably not. They were probably in Haran, scattered out around. Send messengers out, bring my kinsmen in, get the grub together, get the gear together, get the camels together. Who knows how long that took? I think we're looking at a week at least. From the time Jacob left until Laban was actually leaving his encampment after Jacob, I think we're looking at a week. Okay? And now he moves out after Jacob. And of course, Scripture tells us he then journeyed seven days in order to catch Jacob. So now we're talking about seven plus seven. We're looking at 14 days, probably. That's essential. It's absolutely essential, <laughs> as we'll note here. Otherwise, you can't really, I mean, you can hardly believe what happened here, unless God miraculously transported those animals, you know, <laughs> put them in some kind of heavenly rail car and whew, down the way. Because of the distance we're talking about here, the distance between where Jacob was finally overtaken by Laban and Haran is 350 miles by the route he would have traveled. Now, there is no way you are going to move all those animals 350 miles in a week. And in two weeks, it's tough. Those poor animals were panting. 
You know, they probably had all lost half their weight by the time they got there. He wasn't concerned about their weight. They'll, they'll fatten up later, but we're going to move these dudes. And, and, and so they're going on down the line here. And can you imagine goats and sheep trotting, you know, because somebody's goading them along the whole way. And, you know, everybody's tired. And it's hard to imagine, but it's had to be. Can you imagine the cloud that was kicked up by this herd? as they rambled over the landscape. Now, he had to travel down the Fertile Crescent route. He had to travel down the main route because if he'd have gone due south to Tadmor and then cut in, he'd have been out in the desert. And you have a real problem feeding thousands of animals in the desert. So he had to stay with the Fertile Crescent. The Fertile Crescent, of course, is a modern concept. James Breasted, a British historian in the 19th century, uh, is the one to first apply that concept by looking at the map and seeing this kind of a shape like this. He called it the Fertile Crescent. From the Persian Gulf up to about southern Turkey, then down the coast into Egypt, you have this strip. And in the middle of that horseshoe-shaped thing is a desert. And so if, if you're traveling with livestock or anything, you've got to follow the way of the grass. You've got to go where the grass and the water happen to be because you couldn't keep the animals alive any other way. And so he's traveling uh, along this route. So Laban wouldn't have a hard time knowing which way to go to, to follow him, and he simply knew that he would eventually overtake him. Well, we're running out of time, but I think it's important to think also something about Laban's mentality here. Laban's enraged. I mean, this guy's mad. After all I've done for Jacob, look how he treats me. He just ups and leaves without even saying goodbye or thank you. I mean, this guy was living in denial, I think, <laughs> as to what he really was. And his anger was greatly heightened by the discovery that his gods were gone can you imagine how much it would strike you to discover your God is gone? It could be really, really a, you know, a, a painful experience, especially if, if it has an uh, inheritance connotation or they have an inheritance connotation along with it. Uh, this, is, this is a real serious situation. So next week we'll, we'll pick up here and we'll look a little bit at his mentality and how God popped his little old bubble. <laughs> Scripture teaches us that God even makes the, the evil that people do to ultimately praise him in some way.